What's up, all you beautiful people? Happy March, y'all. Um, how y'all doing? We're doing a Sunday release today. Um, it's been a good. Uh, it's been a good week. You know, starting some new videography jobs. Shot some weddings. Um, feels really good to be back behind the camera, putting in work. Um, you know, trying to trying to build something of a career here in the Bay Area. It's unfortunately can't all be fun in podcasts. But uh but I'm trying, I'm striving, I'm grinding, I'm hustling. And uh it's good to it's always good to see money coming into your account and not the opposite. So working hard on those endeavors and trying to stay active as well. Doing a lot of yoga. Gotta do that. You know, I'm all about that early, you know, wake up, roll out of bed and do an hour of yoga just to start the day. It's been such a powerful force in my life. Um, I've been doing it ever since I got back from Costa Rica and it makes a huge difference just in how my mind is throughout the day. Um, so, yeah, you know, we're living through some strange times right now, as I'm sure everyone's aware uh, and and. This episode in particular, um, you know, is, is an attempt to deal with that. Um, I'll say like, you know, over these last two or three years, uh, I've become, I think a lot more wrapped up in politics. I mean, how could you not, um, to the point where it started to, really start to affect some of my mental health stuff. And I kind of had to take a step back and, uh, you know, luckily I have people in my life who love me, who, who are able to, you know, my brother being the main one, just, just kind of, uh, check me sometimes when I get too deep into the weeds. Cause I think politics can, can become this kind of soul crushing thing that makes it harder to connect with others and uh so i've been i've been hesitant you know especially doing this podcast uh for these last couple years um i do have my my own like political beliefs and my ideology but when i'm when you know in building this platform you know that's not something that i'm necessarily trying to make a part of the content that i'm creating um you know, it's especially in these days, it seems like any topic to do dealing with politics is so fraught and, uh, you know, and thus to speak about it to op- is to open yourself up to a lot of energy. And sometimes I think I'm, I'm better suited than others and being able to receive that. And so there's kind of a selfish kind of protective element in me of wanting to even go on the record about how I think or what my opinions are. Um, it seems like a very provocative thing to do. Um, but I think also, you know, one of my, one of my core values is this idea of free speech and the marketplace of ideas and making, uh, content that is feeding people's minds and is causing people to have, conversations both internally and with others so um in that context you know i think this episode you know speaks to that 
Um, you know, I should say my guest today is someone who's really close to me uh, and has been such a positive force in my life. Um, when I was growing up in the Valley, uh, you know, my, my pops, you know, my father wasn't really a, a huge positive force in my life. He was, you know, he was kind of struggling with his own stuff and couldn't really be the role model, uh, that, that me and my brother needed as young boys. And, you know, the, the advantage of growing up in a small community and the, the, you know, the, the ultimate wisdom of our mother was to put us into these contexts, uh, where we would get some really good, uh, male role model leadership stuff. And, uh, and, and, you know, as a young boy, you're like so hungry for that energy, uh, from, from older boys, from older men. And, uh, you know, as, as I've spoken about in other podcasts, you know, there's kind of this magical place in my childhood called the red house. And, um, you know, I've had on, you know, Marsha Thelen, I've had on Jasper Thelen. Now we're having on Ace Thelen, who is, uh, you know, the, the son of Marsha, the brother to Jasper. And, you know, as, as a kid was a huge, you know, influence on, on my young mind in, you know, Ace is just such a deep dude and is so inherently curious, uh, about the world and about, you know, the way that his, his brain works. I think that he really takes off these, these big bites of, of reality and chews on them and, you know, when I was just, you know, when I was a boy, there were many days where we would, you know, be at an event the night before at the Red House. And, you know, my mom would let me stay over because because Ace's uh, nephew is my age. Shout out Spencer. So we would be hanging out and then we would kind of petition our parents to let us have Monday off and stay at the Red House. And, and it was always like, hey, can we do school with Ace on Monday instead? And then Ace would kind of uh, take us under our wing for the day and we'd walk in the garden and he would teach us about philosophy and he would ask us these deep questions. And, uh, you know, I, I felt a real kinship at a young age. Uh, you know, I think Ace was probably like in his late teens, early twenties at this time too, but he was so responsible for helping me to develop a critical thinking perspective at such a young age. I'm so forever indebted to, to him for, you know, treating my, treating me as a worthy intellect, even though I was like nine or 10 years old, I still, when I would talk with Ace, I would feel like he would really pay attention to what I was saying and be super engaged with me and, and really curious about what I thought about life and about these ideas. And that's something that has served me throughout my life and continues to serve me to this day, this, this, uh, ability to communicate in this way. So I'm super grateful to him for that. Um, and me and Ace have been talking, you know, we've been talking for, for months about having this conversation. You know, it's Ace is definitely a man of the Valley and is 
you know, a deep part of that community. And it's as, as with many Valley folk, it's often a, uh, it takes great ambition to get them out of the Shire. And so I was really grateful that Ace made it out here. And it's, it's definitely been a while since we've gotten to connect in a deep and meaningful way. So, you know, that is one of the joys of this podcast getting to have a legitimate excuse, if you will, to connect with people in your life. And I really felt like regardless of what came out of the conversation, having this opportunity to connect with someone that I care so much about uh, was was worth it in itself. Um, And I was super excited to do it. So all that being said, uh, you know, disclaimer, this is a heavy conversation. Uh, that we have here. Um, We're both, I think, pretty deeply in a state of dismay at the the trends that our government is pushing us towards with regards to the conflict in Ukraine, the warmongering that's taking place, the the, the seemingly like ecstatic bandwagon of, of people advocating for military intervention in Ukraine, um, just to place this for people listening in the future. Uh, two weeks ago, Russia invaded Ukraine and, uh, the, the conflict has been ongoing. I know that even in the last couple of days, things have developed. So, you know, some of the things we say in this episode may be obsolete at this point, or the situation may have changed. Um, but you know, Ace, Ace and myself are both devout pacifists and any movement towards war is something that we I think deeply uh, object to and we deeply regret and so I just couldn't think of anybody else better to talk with in this time as I say in the episode I'm so disillusioned with the corporate media that when these big things these big events happen it's often difficult it's it's a whole process to try to discern legitimate sources of information that I can trust and build my own understanding of the events uh, that, that are often unfolding like faster than anyone can follow. So, you know, one of the great resources in this context for me is to try to find others whom I trust, uh, you know, to, to get their take. Well, what do you think about this? That's kind of how I build meaning in my life. And Ace is someone that has always been politically active, uh, always been a political thinker. Um, you know, as far back as I can remember, he would, would would ask and challenge me to think critically about politics and was definitely a, a model for me in not only thinking about politics, but also communicating with others about them. And I know that he has gotten... Uh, more and more kind of invested in the political history of the United States and um, has always been an advocate for peace. Uh, I think that, 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 uh, you know, politically we agree probably on 98% of, of the topics. And then, you know, that the 2% is, is the interesting zone, you know, but that is kind of what I'm trying to lay out here is, you know, me and Ace don't, you know, line up a hundred percent on everything, but we still can have, I want to show everybody that just because you don't agree on everything, you can still have a really meaningful and respectful conversation 
about things. Uh, and, and again, you know, I'm coming into this as a podcast host. I, I wasn't coming in it trying to be contentious. The objection, the, or the objective uh, was more to try to learn and connect with my friend. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of what we set out to do here, um, as well as providing uh, maybe some food for thought for others and an artifact that is at its core a an exclamation and defiance of the war machine and the military industrial complex that seems to be pushing us towards, you know, what what might be the end of us all. I mean, it really is that stark right now. The, you know, the situation with this other nuclear superpower. So uh, I did my best to, you know, remain open and engaged with ACE in this conversation. I know that there will be things that we cover that are controversial, uh, that, that may bring up feelings in others. And all I can say is just that, you know, that we're both people that love each other, we're really good friends, and that, you know, my um, intent with this conversation was to try to learn and understand. And, you know, sometimes that's, that's by making points. Uh, you know, I, the way that my mind works is I might make a point. doesn't mean I'm a hundred percent locked in on it, but I like to make a point and present that to somebody to see how that point stands up in the face of critical thought of criticism and, so that's kind of what I'm doing in this conversation at times is like poising these questions, posing these questions and um, and tr really trying to understand, uh, you know, Ace's reading of the situation so that I can better inform myself so that I can better understand what it is I actually believe in, because that's kind of an, an ongoing thing. Um I really hope that, that that you all get something out of this. Um, again, you know, I just want to emphasize that this is a good faith conversation between friends uh, who, who at the, you know, deep down, I think we both just really care about peace and are, and are scared about the direction we seem to be heading in. Um, I really appreciate Ace coming on. Uh, like I said, he's one of my favorite people and I really wanted him to get an opportunity to present himself in this context. And, uh, and it was just a blast, you know, is it, it was really good connecting with my friend. So I'm going to get to the episode now. That's, that's my big intro, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope that you all find something of value out of this and that it, that it shakes up your thinking in, in, in ways and, and that it brings a sense of creativity out in you. Um, you know, because right now we need that connection and creativity more, more than ever. Um, and so, you know, th this whole thing in, in my own small way is my own prayer for peace. And I hope that we're able as a, as a world to find our way in that direction again. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce to you, my good friend, Ace Thelen on this Episode 48 of the Bartcast. They were sick, and the, the scene was so dope. Great to hear from you. What a surprise.
So, I kind of was thinking like a good place to start with this stuff would be, you know, because, you know, kind of as I was saying in the introduction, I, it's been really hard for me in this, in these last couple of weeks just to figure out what actually is going on. Mm. And I think a lot of people are caught up in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I am skeptical of, of building my understanding from sources that are incentivized to lead us into war. Right. Of which I think you could say that a lot of the, the, the corporate media sources have uh, conflicts of interest and incentives that don't line up with like a peace oriented philosophy. To say the least. So, I think that, you know, for myself selfishly, but also for the, for the audience as well, you know, in your own words, to the best of your understanding, can you just explain also for people who maybe are listening to this years from now, what is this moment that we find ourselves in, in history? What is happening right now? Why are we having this conversation? Can you give me just a, you know, the the ACE vision of, of what is going on in the world? Thank you so much, Hobie. So it is, this is nuclear brinksmanship, right? We cannot deny the fact that we are dealing with nuclear brinksmanship on the DEFCON 4 or whatever, high alert, high alert. We Mm -hmm. all know that. And so that's, you know, and that says a lot about where these countries, all of the, the major powers, the United States and Russia, really, you know, that they're willing to put us all through this, you know? And so I really want to make clear that not this, the United States had ve- several, many opportunities to step back from nuclear brinksmanship. I think that has to be said first, that the United States is a country that spends 10 times more building weapons every year than Russia does. So I just want to like give somebody, you know, if if a Hobie Owen walked up to a 60 foot giant, you know, that's the scale of these militaries. Russia is not a peer competitor with the United States. And it's definitely not a compare competitor with the United States and NATO. What is it? Their, their GDP is smaller than Italy, much smaller, smaller than Brazil. And Russia has not been the imperialist power, believe it or not that the United States has been or that Britain has been or that France has been mm-hmm. or that Spain was even before that. Russia is a, has a vast, what makes Russia powerful is their untapped vast, the most land in the world, right? right. Much of it untapped or mm-hmm. so to speak by capitalists. And Russia is a capitalist country now since the fall of the Soviet Union. Boris Yeltsin, you know. Yeah. So what's happening in the current crisis, just to give a little timeline, I think is really helpful. Yeah, let's do that. To to make it clear. Um, And NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So I think Westerners have a very different perception of what NATO is as opposed to what Russians in the most of the world sees NATO as. So... um, NATO was, you know, the, the armies end up in Berlin after World War II. In World War II, we have to start there, I think, to get to the recent. And we'll, we'll try and get through it quickly. Sure. You know, I think that's uh, fair historical context. Uh, Russia lost somewhere between 20 and 27 million people in World War II. It's wild. That just has not sunken in. Because the, the typical American 
one of the main things they think of when they think about history is Hitler and the Holocaust and, and Nazi aggression, right? We've, we've all seen quite a few movies and we know, we know and, but we think the United States was this great liberator and won the World War, but it was Russia that won World mm -hmm. War II, right? 20 to 27 million, <sighs> half of them civilians and Hitler and they, they go all the way to Stalingrad and they're, they're, why does Hitler invade the Soviet Union? He wants the riches of the Ukraine, and he wants the oil riches of the Caucasus Mountains, Georgia being one of those important states. So Ukraine and Georgia, Hitler invading Russia. 20, I don't think, I don't think Hitler um, knew what he was getting himself into because you know 20 to 27 million in a po in a population of 170 million is somewhere around 15 percent of the entire population dead and you can only imagine what percent of young men that was right so russia was a decimated soviet union was a decimated in many ways country but it was 15 republics soviet union forms after world war one the bolshevik revolution and they add republics and so all these armies end up in Berlin, right? Then the Berlin Wall. And so what is going to happen with Germany? Germany is a key country to understand in the current crisis, right? Um, so they want to keep, the United States wants to keep Germany in NATO, right? And Germany is divided between East and West. Um, when the, when the, when the, the Warsaw Pact is, is, is not the original Soviet Union. It's the Eastern European countries. Mm. And so Poland, Czech. So let me, let me stop you there real quick, just, just so that I can get this timeline clear in my mind. So we're in Berlin in, in what, 1945? Yeah. And you have the Red Army, the Soviet Army, and you have the United States army along with britain the, the the allies if you will and a much weaker france and a much weaker france and they're both occupied in this in the former capital of of the nazis and you kind of have this uh almost like showdown or this let's impasse. remember that that the united states and the soviet union are allies right and so there's another lost opportunity mm -hmm. right but because the soviet union has a socialist agenda in a global socialist agenda they're a, a peer competitor and and so world war ii ends with a bipolar world right it's the soviet union it's the united states every country's got to decide you're which, with us or against us you're with us or against and us. this is it is it at this moment when nato it forms nato forms in 1949 okay um but there's but that like impasse is still, western europe it's that impasse is still existing with this kind of symbolic city of berlin with the east mm -hmm. going to the, the the you know communists germany the west going to the capitalists uh and that's kind of where uh this north atlantic treaty organization is born out of this this situation mm -hmm. yeah and and what for for people that aren't aware like what is nato like we hear this word right. So it's a military there. alliance between um, Western European countries and the United States and Canada. Okay. A lot of the world understands that NATO is a white 
alliance of countries. It's mm. the dominant, we, we were talking about the last 500 years, it's the countries that conquered the world, actually. And, and I got to say this now. Mm-hmm. Everybody, I mean, the Nazi thing is, is in people's minds. And I'm going to talk more about that later in Ukraine. But people have this idea that Germany wanted to conquer the world and that the West, Western Europe defeated the Nazis, but the Western Europe had already conquered the world. France and France and England, you know, controlled half of the world. Right. They were the global powers. Germany was not. Who can you name a German colony? No. Nope. How many people speak German in the world, you know? And I, I was surprised in, in when I delved into European history just to find out how young of a country Germany actually was, you know, at the time of World War Two. Like Germany had been Germany was was killing it, fighting itself for four hundred years. Right, Germany had been one of these territories divided into that was continuously dozens of by, different yeah. warring princes. Right. So, um, so like you said, not not excusing the actions or ideology of Nazis or Nazism, but it is an important historical perspective to see that a lot of the a lot of the accusations or a lot of the most hated patterns of Nazism had been enacted in other parts of the world by the, by the Western powers as well. I think that's the point right. you're making, right? Yeah. The, the genocide of the native Americans, the, the, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, those were European and French and Spanish colossal crimes. But so it, it's really, I'm saying this to get people beyond not, I don't want people to think that one side is worse than the other. Mm-hmm. And although that may be, I want people to get beyond this good and bad um, polemic that right. people are stuck in. And we we want context and depth. Yes, and, nuance. And profundity. Is and, that sun in your eyes? Do you want me to pull that shade down? No, I'm, I'll just... It's not. It's fine. Okay. If I sit up. So... So NATO is formed... Uh, so the Soviet Union is not as popular, to say the least, in the Eastern European countries. There's rebellions. Okay. They They persecute the resistance movements. Stalin was no hero. Well, he was to some. Yeah. He was a, he was to some. And, and that's a, another, another story. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Soviet Union collapses. Um, and that's the moment for peace, right? So, but Bill Clinton starts adding NATO countries well, let's before we get to Clinton, just just to keep the like the historical time. Like, what were the ori- original NATO countries? So the major ones are France, the United States, Britain, right? Canada, smaller mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. But in these games of global geopolitics, it's the major powers that are calling the shots. Right. Today, NATO is a United States dictatorship. Mm-hmm that's dragging France and Germany into a war with Russia the way I see it. And, and what was the, was the war? What was the Warsaw pact? So those were the countries, an economic alliance. It was the Eastern European countries becoming part of a military alliance with the Soviet union. Gotcha. So it was that in response to NATO? Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm just trying to draw these line, these historical lines so that people can see the larger geopolitical, map right you know it every, most people i think could still couldn't find ukraine on a map and haven't really thought about ukraine 
you know, more than a month ago. And so now suddenly everybody's trying to kind of see this picture in their mind of where the lines are drawn and what the forces are. I think it's important to establish how these lines were drawn, what these, you know, uh, factions and organizations are. The big picture thing with the fall of the Soviet Union is that now we all heard the phrase, the United States is the world's only global superpower. Right. Right. And immediately they move into the Middle East. Right. And George H.W. Bush declares a new world order. Right. That's what's changing today is that there's no the United States is no longer the world's only empire superpower. China has changed the dynamic dramatically. Mm -hmm. And China now is in the passing lane as far as global economic power goes. And so that's why the U.S. is acting out, actually, is because they see an end to their global empire being the only guy making all the rules. You know, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the dollar as the world's global reserve currency. These are what's actually coming to an end. And so that's why the United States is is reacting and seeing what is the what is NATO's relevance in Europe if Germany joins Russia, who's now linked with China, right? Where does that leave the United States in the European and Asian economic block? So there's the United States. I think is doing this to um, contain this rising European Asian economic block. So the it's the kind of the. Um the death rattle of a of a failing empire if you will absolutely um and and that could take the whole world down with us if we don't if we don't raise our voice it's not a time to be silent it's time to raise your voice and talk to your family and try and really deepen and new add nuance mm-hmm. to and question well i think first to, you know even before that is to understand to try to to grasp some understanding of actually what is going on and what is happening. Okay, so Clinton's expansion of NATO is not uh, that significant. He adds a few countries. Didn't um, I heard that George W. H. W. Senior didn't he make a pact or an alliance with Russia that said we will not expand beyond right. James East Baker was his Secretary of State. Okay, and the famous line was not one inch east. Right. From the wall. So NATO didn't have to expand. The Warsaw Pact dissolved, and that's when NATO could have dissolved. And you could have built economic and cultural, and if people really wanted peace, that would have been the opportunity to make it. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of opportunities since then. <laughs> Getting into George W. Bush in 2005, there's another expansion of NATO, the Baltic states and other states in, the, in Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europeans understandably are pushing for NATO expansion after being occupied by the Soviet Union. Right. So there's countries are divided. There's different parties and some people want it and others don't. But here's the critical one. Even if you've learned nothing so far, Mm -hmm. 2008, the end of Bush, George Bush, W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and said, I saw he has a soul or, you know, they were, they were trying to, to um, 
find common it wasn't or... where it is now because yeah. i think that's because china hadn't really risen up yet mm. that the united states was more comfortable in its position as the global hegemon so 2008 there's a nato conference in bucharest hungary and france and germany angela merkel is you know on record as saying is being adamantly against expanding nato to ukraine and georgia mm. so from that point on the united states is, is pushing polling germany and france also said bad idea bad idea gonna provoke russia mm -hmm. ukraine is in russia's vital strategic interests right you know half the population is russian speaking i don't know if it's half a third to half the eastern side of the country um ukraine was part of the original soviet union so it's part of the soviet union for 70 something years ukraine has you know old russian ties but also independent eras um but 2008 bucharest um nato says that they're open or they they're that georgia and ukraine they accept their aspirations so it's not formal membership but they're saying okay let's look at that and that's when you know they start having more economic aid ngos you know the beginning of trying to bring ukraine into the western sphere of economics and power and influence right? influence so in, but in 2008 they said ukraine and georgia and so that's when war erupts between russia and georgia Gotcha. Because Georgia is also vital strategic interest to Russia's um, stability. You're saying lots of oil. In and Russia region. always, uh, the whole time it's been saying, these are our vital strategic interests. We cannot accept Ukraine being in the European sphere. Um, let's keep Ukraine neutral, mm -hmm. which it just makes so much sense. Yeah. Let's it's keep like a buffer zone. The whole, the whole, their buffer zone get, just got sm gets smaller and smaller. And what we see now, stepping back is it like a 30-year march of Western Europe to Russia's borders? In slow motion... That not one inch becomes a wave. Becomes a 30-year march. Yeah. And so, war in Georgia, uh, South Ossetia, um, triggered in part by the willingness to expand NATO to Georgia and Ukraine. But that doesn't go anywhere really 2014 is the key critical this is the is the year where we we have to focus to understand the current crisis 2014 let's go there so 2014 um yanukovych is the president of ukraine victor yanukovych and he's trying to keep ukraine neutral but europe is now more open and and starting to push a little more to bring Ukraine into its sphere of influence. Um, and the United States is, you know, giving democracy, you know, NGOs are trying to create democracy mm -hmm. in Ukraine, the national endowment for democracy, I believe it's called. And when they because say the CIA can't do it, everybody knows the CIA has done it so many times. Now they come up yeah. with other covers and that's all right if you can create democracy through 
a legitimate process, let's do it. Mm -hmm. But let's what happened in Ukraine was entirely different than a legitimate process. So in the months, uh, in the fall of 2013, you have protests called the Maidan protests. And Maidan is the big square in Kiev, kind of like Tahir Square, where the, where the central protest would be of any countries. Gotcha. And so pr the protests become widespread. What are, very, they, what are they protesting? They're, they're, they want to be in, in Europe, in the European sphere. Gotcha. So these are like pro-NATO Protests. Not NATO, pro-European Union. Oh, they want to be in the EU. But that's a Trojan horse for NATO. Right, the two are very closely right, associated. Right, 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 right. NATO is almost like the military arm NATO is of the, military. the EU. NATO, NATO is uh, absolutely just okay. the military. Yeah. Um, and so Yanukovych, these protests are backed by right-wing fascist elements, the muscle... January 6th, people have on the front of their mind. So it was like January 6th times 10 that succeeded. Okay. So Yanukovych is overthrown in a violent Nazi elements leading. Most of the people are obviously not Nazis. They're liberals and mm -hmm. what we would call liberals and conservatives, right? Um, progressives, all kinds of people. But uh, the people like pushing hard and snipers killing police. And a violent, um, so Yanukovych, in, to his credit, trying to keep peace, calls for um, a, a conference with Russia, um, I believe it's Germany, uh, maybe one other country, and they broker a deal to give the eastern provinces more autonomy. They're trying to prevent um, the violence. Wait, but what, I'm confused, weren't, you were just saying that the protesters were the ones that were trying to get Ukraine to join the EU. So Yanukovych says no to the EU. It's not a good offer. Okay. The EU, the EU offer is like offering him austerity. But were there like also were there also protesters that were trying to? What is this also where the separatists that wanted to join? Not yet. Okay. No, I'm Ukraine is not in a civil war yet. Gotcha. But this coup, this U.S. backed coup, is what triggers the civil war. Okay. So the U.S. is backing these protesters that are in some in the ones pushing the hard, the ones using violence have ties to Ukraine's long history of, of right wing Nazism and white supremacy militia. Um, a chunk of Ukraine um, lost a lot of people fighting Hitler, but there were segments of the Ukrainian population that sided with the Nazis, with Germany. And they there's one guy called Bandara. Um, who was, you know, the ideal, ideological, one of the ideological leaders, and they commit pogroms against Jews, massacres against Poles, I believe. It's, a, it's ugly. It's heinous. Mm -hmm. And so there are those elements, and the U.S. is okay with those elements if they're pushing for a government that will allow the EU and NATO to come in and make Ukraine part of the Western um, economic bloc. So Yanukovych, the February twenty first, two thousand fourteen, um, says no to European Union. Signs a deal with Russia. He's going to be in Russia's sphere of influence, and he brokers a deal, pulls back the cops, and that's when they take over the government house, the par whatever the 
these these ba- buildings pro EU protesters take over the government. Well, it's pushed by the you know the militia groups. Okay, and I, I don't know how many po- and protesters are dying. It's spin. It's starting to spin, and um, Yanukovych flees, and they 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 form a new government, and they try to impeach. They try to make it legitimate by impeaching Yanukovych, but they don't get enough votes to impeach Yanukovych. So it's not a there's not a legal, they can't even say that, it, they don't even have a legal covering mm. for the coup. John McCain, Victoria Newland says, say it's a great day for democracy. And so they, they the gov- new government passes, you know, anti-Russian language laws. Um, and that's when Moscow decides to take Crimea. Because Crimea and the Black Sea is their only uh, year-round naval. It's their access to the Mediterranean, to you know, to the Middle East. It's mm-hmm. their vital interest, strategic vital interest. They already had a naval base in Crimea, but if Ukraine is part of NATO, NATO could build a naval base in Korea, right. in Crimea, Crimea. So there's an eight-year civil war, right? in the eastern provinces, the Donbass, the Don River, mm-hmm. those two, Donetsk and Luhansk, I think, are the names of the provinces. Um, and the United States is, from the very beginning, Russian-backed separatists, Russian-backed separatists. But they're also Ukrainians, right? So the Ukrainian army is attacking, you know, it's a civil war. And, and Russia's backing that. And um, so Biden is president, in twenty, vice president in 2014. Um, and he knows about this coup, right? So Biden is deeply implicated in an illegitimate government being created in Ukraine under the Western sphere of influence. And so the eight-year civil war is now a proxy war between Russia and the United States, really. To Obama's credit, and I I don't say this about Obama on a Mm -hmm. lot of issues, he has enough sense to not arm the Ukrainian um, army in the eastern provinces. Um, it's ugly. The, the Ukrainian army is not in control of its mm. fascist militias. So there's atrocities committed, I'm sure, on both sides. But And, and, and Obama got pilloried by the media, right, for what he, the, the famous line is like he, he made this red line in the sand and then... That was Syria. Oh, that was Syria. Okay, I'm I'm confusing and, and my Russia my intervenes dates. in Syria, and the reason Assad doesn't lose power in Syria is because of Russia's intervention. Gotcha. And the U.S. is willing to ally with fascist Islamic, right? Um, the people, the very enemies. Didn't we ally with Al Qaeda at one point? At one point. Yeah. Or um, let's go back to Ukraine. So, <clears throat> so Russia enters Crimea. Russia takes Crimea in 2014. Yeah. <clears throat> an eight-year civil war to, to obama's credit he doesn't arm the ukrainian army <clears throat> russia is stating you know where ukraine must remain neutral there's the minsk accords which call for a ceasefire and um, more autonomy for the east <clears throat> the united states is not listening to reason for the actions show that the United States wants war. The United States doesn't want Russia has sells uh, so much natural gas all across Europe, especially Eastern Europe. 
that Russia is um, one of its vital economic trades is gas. Um, and Nord Stream 2 was the, the next phase of Russia selling gas to Germany and, and Europe. Is, was that, is that a pipeline? or That's a, the pipeline that comes down from the Baltic states gotcha. above the baltic states and it was um united states doesn't want it to be built and they tried to stop it and then russia completed it and germany wanted it and part of part of one of the variables is that this germany just canceled the Nord stream 2 pipeline mm. and so the u.s has been building up it's fracking more and more oil and so now it wants to sell the sanctions against russia partially are so they can sell oil and natural gas said more expensive than Russia was going to sell it. It's yeah, not a good deal for Europe. Right. That was one of the big points last night. I, you know, in preparation for this conversation, I listened to Biden's state of the union and he very explicitly states, you know, in that speech last night, you know, using Ukraine as the excuse that we're, you know, you sending out 38 million barrels of oil from our reserves that we're releasing all these, all this natural gas, all these resources uh, to Europe. So it's interesting when taken in that context to see how this, you know, the, 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 this crisis is an opportunity for the capitalists, you know, to, to make a, a, you know, a killing and pardon the pun. You know. No, we have to say that that capitalism is built on killing. And um, Russia and China, at the Olympics, the Beijing Olympics, got together and issued a 50-page joint statement basically laying out how the era of the United States being the world's only superpower is over and that we need to go to a multipolar mm. world. I'm against all empires. I'm mm -hmm. for the people, everyday people, the working people of the world. But that plays into the United States thinking, right? Euro, uh, Russia and China being locked economically pushes the United States out. And if Germany builds an economic block with Russia, where does the, where does that leave NATO? Right. So eight year civil war, Trump, interestingly enough, the impeachment, the impeachment 1.0, 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. um, was about Ukraine. Yep. And I believe I didn't get too deep into the the details of the impeachment, but the um, quid pro quo, this for that. I believe that Trump was saying we're not going to give your weapons unless you give us dirt on Biden or something. The way I heard it, he was asking them to investigate. Biden's son, Hunter, who had mysteriously been placed on the board of an energy company in Ukraine, mm -hmm. you know, making six figures for a position he seemingly had no experience in. It seemed like a very quid pro quo. But it does dynamic. show that the U.S. is moving economically yeah. into Ukraine. At that point, that's when Trump starts arming the Ukrainian. I think Trump is so pressured. Mm. By the Democrat, by Russia Gate, and everyone accusing him of being a Russian stooge, that he starts arming the Ukrainians from the, the West, you know, the Kiev Ukrainians, 
the new illegitimate government. EU friendly Ukraine or Ukrainians. Yeah. Okay. And so um Trump arms and then when the Democrats regain power in twenty twenty one, that's when it's the armaments start to escalate. Turkey is sending drones. Drones are offensive weapons. Mm-hmm. Um so and we heard in the news for weeks Russia is going to create a false flag <laughs> incident. Yeah. And it just felt to me like, wow, it's pretty clear to me that the United States is provoking Russia, not not willing to acknowledge Russia's legitimate cons- security concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember hearing like months ago, I mean, really for the last couple of years, there's been so many speeches given by, you know, our, our politicians, quote unquote, leaders, you know, basically calling Russia all these names, challenging them, uh, you know, feel how you feel about about Putin and his regime. I think that there's this fundamental point, which is like they're another they're, they're the other nation that has enough nukes to wipe out all life on this planet. And to me however you feel about the regime antagonizing another nation that can end all life rather than seeking a peaceful diplomatic solution is just a bad idea. And Ukraine is not in the vital strategic interests of the United States. Right. You were, United States is fine without Ukraine. It It is when you start to see what we can gain. Well, when you start to view this, the system as an empire, right? Cause that's another yes. thing that, what was it that, that Hillary Clinton said, Putin is amassing troops on the border of NATO, uh, NATO's doorstep, right? And you're like, wait, he, he's amassing troops in Russia. You know, he, he's amassing troops in his own country. But that is now the way that we're thinking about this in the West is that that is our own border because we're thinking as imperialists, right? When when you use that kind of language. And, they, and that's they've been imperialists the whole time. Yeah. And we, we have to remember that Bill Clinton bomb, used NATO to bomb Yugoslavia, which was a massive bombing campaign. And then NATO was part of Afghanistan. How are these NATO? How how are these mm-hmm. defending Western Europe? Right. And then Libya, the most revolutionary country in Africa, is taken out during when Hillary Clinton is Secretary of State, and she's caught on tape saying, um, "I came, I saw, he, he died. died." Yeah. I don't know if she quote. wanted that out because she wanted to look more hawkish right but we've been hearing the drumbeats of war against russia for longer than um i guess 2008 i guess mm-hmm. is because um, there was that moment of de- of detente right there wasn't a, a hot the cold war it seemed like the cold war was ending there was a step back from right from the brink. there was hillary clinton brought a um big red button the reset button they were talking about to Lavrov, the foreign minister. I don't think he knew what it was, but there was this <laughs> campaign to say, oh, it's a reset button. And I think the, the Republicans, might, their strategy might be to make war with China first. But now I think the U.S. Um, controlling elite see Russia and China as one, um, cool, you know, a strict uh, um, allies. So that kind of brings us to where we're at now, which for people listening in the future, you know, that this is 
in the last week, Russia has moved into Ukraine and begun, you know, and this is kind of one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I've heard so many different reports of what's actually happening over there, anywhere from, you know, invading just the Donbass region in the in the east to like shelling Kiev and launching rockets, taking over, trying to take over the whole country. Um, in your understanding, like what is what is this last week of of Russian uh, of the Russian movements? Like what actually has happened in your understanding? I don't have a good idea. I don't I don't know anybody really that has a can say for sure mm-hmm. the fog of war. Right. Truth is the first casualty of war. Um, I know it's bad. I know Russia has has entered and there's 150,000 Ukrainian troops in, in the eastern Donbass region. And it's I, I would imagine Putin, uh, Moscow's strategy is to, to make that the red line, right? Those Russian-speaking, um, 750,000 Russian citizens are in that area. Expats? Or? No, they have citizenship. Okay. Um, and then many more Russian-speaking. And I, I do think that the Crimea and Odessa is in Russia's strategic interests. I don't think they want to occupy Kiev I don't know that there's so we're going to things are going to be changing day to day. Yeah. Um and that's the tragedy of war when you study the world wars, you know, in so many wars people just didn't see it coming because once that violence is unloosed um there's no putting it back. Right. And and then, you know, I've seen people online saying they want vengeance against Putin and um America has never learned, has never been humbled on the global stage by war. Right. Whereas Europeans were, and most of the rest of the world has been. And I think um, Americans have a very Pollyanna view of what war is and how war um, is murder. But war is uncontrollable when you don't reach for peace. And that we need to be, get on the streets and and ask sure we want Russia to um, end its end of we want a ceasefire and we want Russia to we want to call them out for that aggression, mm-hmm. but we need to aim our critique at the these really deceptive and and um, root causes that the United States has been pushing hard for. Yeah. And really call out the warmongering of our own country. Mm-hmm. Our, we're citizens of the United States. We need to critique the people that we have influence on. Right. Um, in, in the whole canard of focusing all our gen, um, energy on the evilness, the demonization of one person is a complete distraction from where we need to put our energy. Well, it's, it's funny. I've seen this pattern arise lately in the last few years, especially. Um, and I've seen many of my friends fall victim to it, but it's this, it's this psychology that's kind of taken root, you know, largely in the left leaning population of our country. Although I'm sure there's plenty of people on the right that are doing this as well, where time and again, in in our zeitgeist, uh, uh, of, of how we're experiencing this culture, 
though these figures will arise and it'll be someone that'll say the wrong thing or make a mistake or do this sometimes justified sometimes unjustified and for everybody who's on team blue or team red they become the symbol for that individual's like inherent sense that this system is broken and corrupt and it's and and I see my friend suddenly pointing you know I think Trump was is like the prime example of like pointing to this one figure and being like you're the representation of everything I'm against I'm going to stop thinking critically I'm going to stop thinking with nuance and I'm just going to loudly proclaim in like with like the supreme moral authority that this is evil and that everything that this person does or everything that is this is associated to this person is pure evil. And I don't want to hear anything other than that. You better say you hate him as much as I do. Um, we've seen it happen with Trump, with Joe Rogan, with now with Putin, I'm seeing so many of my friends that, uh, like myself grew, came of age around the war with Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, I, I, like you were saying in the beginning of this episode, I also became lost a lot of, you know, I kind of had my awakening moment watching the debates about whether or not we go to war in Iraq Mm -hmm. and the lead up to the invasion of Afghanistan and how that turned out. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of people that 20 years ago were, were with me marching in downtown San Francisco, 300,000 people rejecting the Bush administration, rejecting war, loud, you know, proclaimants. And these days I'm so surprised by how many of those voices are from fomenting and, and saying we need to go into Ukraine. We need to stop Putin. We need to stop Russia. This is the most evil stuff. And to me that, you know, that is where such a big part of, you know, my own feelings of like hopelessness and fear come into the equation because I know these people to, to have to, none of these people are, are my enemies or evil or, you know, they're all just people like myself, but how do we build any sort of kind of meaningful coalition with peace at its aims when so many of our would be allies who have been aligned with us politically for, for decades suddenly now seem to be, advocating for war pushing towards you know our government's intervention in, in in a conflict that could end all life on this planet that really is like the death star you know like, that's a great question hobie i wish i had a a clear good answer i think that the partisan you know i i relate to that because so many people with with the complete co-optation of the news Right. And, and you're inspiring me because you're talking about these, the media is actually all these different spectrum of people online doing this, right? That's the media we're trying to build mm-hmm. an independent media. Here we are with KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Let's remember, we do have some peaceful infrastructure set up. Yep. You know, some real dialogue. We have the black radical tradition. You know, we have the Native American resistance. We have... A profound history of resistance we have um, so many prophets so many leaders and they're out there doing their thing and um, we need to do more of this we need to not be silent with people we disagree with especially now mm-hmm. um, 
I don't know. It's really grim, Hobie. Yeah. And I think that I'm noticing that people are being cowed into silence. That's what scares me the most right now is the fervor of the the fervor of war and the the um, how war creates a herd mentality. Right. And so anyone willing to step out of that herd right now is um, going to get some pushback because you feel that that drumbeat. And so continue to ask questions, continue to um, be proactive. I'm, I'm here today where you're talking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, every friend you have is a, is a precious human soul. Totally. And every, every person on earth is a precious human soul. Um, and, well, and I think that that's so often, you know, what makes this particular moment we're living in so difficult is that, you know, I think it was this way before COVID, but I think it's only been amplified by the, you know, imposed government or self isolation of the last two years. I've really seen an atrophy take hold in our ability to communicate with each other Mm. in a way that is not immediately emotionally hot. Mm. Um, Anytime you get into a conversation with someone you know, and there's a disagreement. I see immediately, I know in myself, this I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. I get, it's very difficult to not immediately get into that like anxious fight or flight mode of like, well, if you believe that, then you must believe this, 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 and this. And, you know, you see that, uh, you see that loop take hold where suddenly you, you know, people's emotions are ratcheted up to where they think that you're, a Nazi or they think that you're a white supremacist or they think that you're, you know, enter whatever one of these labels. Um, so that's kind of what I've been trying to explore both on this podcast and in my personal life. Like how do we, you know, get back in the gym of meaningful conversation? How do we start working those muscles again of connecting with each other as humans mm. in a compassionate way I'm not going to be able to like influence you or change your mind by beating you down and telling you you're wrong. Mm. So how do we connect in a way where you get to feel like you're, you know, like you're valued Mm. and, 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 and that the information that I have to share with, with, with you is, is valuable and, and something that can open up further dialogue and further connection rather than, us both walking away with our faces red, shaking our heads and not wanting to associate anymore. You know, I think that's happening on a larger level in our society right now. And it makes this particular situation especially difficult uh, because it's not just that we're in a position where we're, we're being fed propaganda night and day aimed at, at making us see this, large group of people on the other side of the world as our enemies. Um, We're also like historically in a position where we're kind of at our most unable to, to talk about these things. You know, I might agree with you on 99% of the issues, but it's going to be that 1% that shuts down our ability to find common ground because we disagree on this one thing. Right. So, um, you can create a big ship, you know, you don't yeah. have to be against war. 
to be against imperialism. You don't have to agree, agree about everything. Right. So finding common ground um, is so important. I think we are also so habituated now on being on our screens. Mm -hmm. I think COVID has taken that to the next level. So I think discussing in person, move, moving away from the online discussion groups and going and touching people and talking to people in real life, that is so much more fulfilling than arguing or trying to persuade somebody on social media. Oh right? yeah. We need touch. We are, we're starving for community. Totally. We have to um, be, be human again, Hobie. That's, that's hit the nail on the head. I, I almost think like kind of how you did like the land acknowledgement in the beginning of this episode. Mm -hmm. I feel like we need to do like love acknowledgements with our friends. If we are going to talk about like these, these difficult topics, you almost need to start by saying, Hey, let's get the important stuff out of the way. I love you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you in my life. I, I believe, you know, I trust you and I value like your own interpretation of this. I'm talking to you and I've, I've started to do this with some of my relatives and, and, and friends in my life who I have political disagreements with. I try to like, you know, either end my text or, or open with by saying like, Hey, I'm doing my best to make sense of this with my own set of facts and figures. I realize that they might be different than yours but I want you to know at the end of the day that I'm engaging in this conversation in, in good faith with the goal of trying to understand what I agree and disagree with a little bit better, but that by choosing to do it with you, I want that to be seen as like me honoring you that I'm, I trust you. You're someone that I admire. You're, you're a person in my life that I want to have this conversation with so that when we do get to those moments where the emotions start to rise, we can try to remember like, Hey, this is my brother I'm talking to, or hey, this is my friend I'm talking to. I got love for this person that's that you know trumps all that. That's beautiful. All those feelings. That's beautiful. Know? I think that's you got it. I think we, that's. Um, I love you, Hobie. <laughs> I love you too, eh? Um, and we're we're starving for human contact, and um, it's a beautiful thing when you can when when you can touch somebody and when you when you do have those conversations where you do connect with people, that's soul food, mm. you know, that, that lifts your spirit. And we are in a spiritual blackout moment as Cornell West reminds us so often, you know, drowning in materialism and debt and all these things. And then you, you know, you play tag with a group of kids and you are an entirely different human being. You're on the love train. Yeah. Turn on John Coltrane, Love Supreme. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, maybe if there's one prescriptive element that I can, that we can, you know, play. suggest. Play. Yeah, is, is go out and play. You play, know? learn from the kids. That's one thing that we discussed last night that I really wanted to make sure we include on this episode, which is like, you know, I think if there is, if there is one group historically, there are many, but one that I would want to bring some, uh, some truth in from, you know, one of the things about the, you know, the, the hippie counterculture movement of the sixties that I think they really had right. Was you mean, this, you mean we, that we had right. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do you make any sort of meaningful, 
political movement sustainable? Mm. How do you keep, how do you align the individual goals, you know, of the constituent members of the group? Not only how do you align their goals with the larger movement, but how do you build a movement that is serving to increase the health of its constituent members, both Mm. the mental health, the physical health. I see so many of my friends who get wrapped up in politics Mm. suffering. Like the, the act of engaging in it is something that like kind of beats down their spirit. They end up increasingly more cynical Mm. and more depressed and more anxious. And so to me, it's like, is your movement integrating joy and playfulness? Like how do we have a merry prankster attitude at changing the world because mm-hmm. in my experience if you don't do that your political movement isn't going to be sustainable like it's one of the things about the George Floyd protests the black lives matter protests you know that i experienced personally when i went out and marched in oakland was the joy mm. there was so much joy and love and i think it was largely affected by the fact that we'd been trapped in our houses and isolated for so long. Mm. You get out on the streets and suddenly you're with mm. all these people. Mm. And mm. I saw, mm. I saw righteous anger, but I also mm. saw even more love and more togetherness and more connection. And to me, that's what we're all hungering for. That's what people, you know, in, in this last couple of years with the shutdown, we've kind of ignored largely the mental health needs of everybody. And, and so, you know, I, and, and to those of you listening out there, I think it's super valid to want to be aware of your needs to be social, of your needs to be connected to other humans, to find that. And, and you know, it, if we can build some sort of meaningful political movement where where that is a big part of it, even if all we're doing is getting together and eating a meal, sharing food, telling jokes. I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned the um, George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter. And here we are in Oakland. You know the where the Black Panther Party was formed. If I'm correct, I believe and, in this neighborhood. And so, um, you know, how did they? How did the Black Panther Party bring people together? Food, you know, healthcare, starting to do all the things we want politics to do for for us. Do them yourself. Mm. Look at the Zapatistas. Great model. Here's some radicals, Comandante Marcos, his a group of six people in the in the jungle saying, Let's start a revolution. And they go around and they they they're preaching Marxism, Leninism. Right? The va- the proletariat vanguard. We're gonna we're gonna overthrow the bourgeoisie and set up a dictatorship of the proletariat. And nobody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so, but then they change their strategy yeah. and they say, let's talk to people and let's listen to what they need. Mm. And let's try and serve the people in need. And so in, it, the movement has to begin with the people that are the most oppressed. Though that are the, those are the people that understand oppression. Right. Right. And so, the black radical tradition in America has the most experience fighting oppression. And the civil, we call it, but let's not say it, the black liberation struggle. Freedom is a constant struggle. Uh, Angela Davis often reminds us that 
we're in it together when we're fighting, when we're in solidarity with the oppressed. So when I'm thinking of the, of the, the oppressed prisoners, right, who are enslaved and mm-hmm. making uh, corporate profits through their labor, yep. having their labor exploited for corporate profit, undocumented immigrants and homeless. You know, let's let's if we're going to have a political party, which I think we do need, wouldn't that be an agenda? The and, homeless party. And wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> yeah. If if you could get enough people of influence supporting the most oppressed, you know, and we're talking about education and what is the pedagogy of the oppressed? Paul Freire and it's a it's a class rising, you know, it's a class solidarity. It's an understanding that the power in numbers, right? And like the Zapatistas, you know, they are are poets, and they're they're you know poet warriors, and um, they have autonomous zones, and they don't get help from the state of Mexico really, and they're doing it, and it's a struggle. Yeah, and you know they they reference Emiliano Zapata, who was long before the modern Zapatistas, and they're. Um, they were a peasant, you know, farmer uprising that overthrow a dictator that had ruled Mexico, Porfirio Diaz, for 40 years. And um, la tierra a quien la trabaja, the earth to whom works it. Any revolution has to recognize the right to live on the earth and that everyone is born on the earth and is entitled to live on the earth and to grow food on the earth and to build a home on the earth and that that's the only fundamental basic right is the right to live on the earth. And that has to be part of our revolutionary agenda. And we need to stop supporting imperialists, Democratic Party imperialists, Republican Party imperialists. And that's why the left, what, what used to be the left, communism, socialism, uh, labor unions, um, we've allowed this country to drift so far to the right towards fascism allowing both parties to become absolutely imperialist. Um, and so we're in a really difficult predicament because um, we don't have the um, movement right now to mm-hmm. really contest this war. But the world, uh, the world is our hope. Right. Africa, mm-hmm. all the indigenous peoples and Latinx peoples, all we do have to talk about race as a fundamental issue in this conflict today and it really looks bad that the u.s supported fascism in ukraine mm-hmm. and i and i know the ukrainian government has a pretty face and that they're they have um the, the actual fascist parties are two percent of the government mm-hmm. or something you know it's not um i don't want to exaggerate or use hyperbole but if you look at the 2014 coup d'etat it's a frightening reality what the U.S. is supporting in Ukraine. Yeah, I heard a point made uh, on a podcast today. I was listening about, you know, just kind of doing some theorizing, some analysis about this current situation. I heard the point made that by, you know, Biden, by imposing these sanctions on Russia, you know, these harsh sanctions, which, you know, sanctions who do they really hurt like the people that they, they don't really hurt the people in power as much as they hurt the people it's going to hurt on Europe. the lowest yeah 
but the argument was made that by doing that, he's actually further incentivizing Russia to get off the U.S. dollar. Yes. And build, like you were talking about, this coalition with China. So maybe if we avoid, you know, if we can avoid this nuclear war that that is the worst of all outcomes, you know, the, the result may be, you know, that the, that this, at least in this region, the American dollar is not, you know, the, 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 the paramount financial symbol that to me seems like more like what this conflict is about, that, mm-hmm. that, that there's like this fight to keep the petrodollar. Yeah. And the United States and the European central banks as the reserve global currency. Exactly. Which how many wars and interventions have been, you know, started to keep that. And think about that dynamic there, because here's an important little piece of the historical puzzle. Um, During the Cold War, right, when we're in this bipolar world between United States and the Soviet Union, um, Kissinger and Nixon in the early 70s go to Beijing and they make a deal with China. So 73, how many years ago is that? Or 77, 40, 45 years ago or something. And the deal is that the United States corporations are going to make a lot of money using Chinese labor and mm-hmm. building things in China. And people forget that China got something out of that. And what China got is all the technology that the U.S. brings into China, building all these things, China gets. Mm-hmm. China keeps it. China can use it themselves. In China, in, um, if you look into it, they're surpassing the United States technologically and economically. Not militarily, mm-hmm. right? The United States has the military card, right? F- four times the military spending of China. But um, the United States, because of its policies, because of its warmongering around the world, threatening China and Russia with war, has really united China and Russia. Yeah. We're almost building, you know, use, I, I shouldn't use we, but the, the American government through its efforts to suppress this situation from happening as indeed seems to be pushing it, pushing the world towards that Absolutely. situation. And I think Europe is seeing the United States more for what it is, that Europe is being dragged into this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, in Germany and France, you know, they have spoken out, but they, um, they're being dragged into it. Germany is now no longer, I think I mentioned it, Norm Street, Nord Stream Two is is not happening. I heard. I think I heard about that. That. So, what would it look like then? Let's 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 drift into some uh, some hypotheticals. You know, let's say that tomorrow the powers that be wake up. They have an epiphany, and you know. You get a call on your old flip phone and they say, Ace, Ace Thelen, we need some, you know, we need some direction. What We're ready to listen. We heard you on this podcast. What, uh, we don't want to be an, an empire anymore. What are the steps we can take to end the American empire? You know, how does that start? What does that process looks, look like? What's the ideal that comes out of that system, out of that situation? What should we be striving for? When we're thinking about the 
you know, the, the, the attainable, you know, ideal future that we could be building towards. I'm not, I'm not going to be staying up late to receive that call. <laughs> um, um, I think before I answer that question, I do want to say that they're never going to have an epiphany that, that our, our, our faith has to be in us mm-hmm. in the wretched of the earth, the downtrodden, um, the yearning masses dying to be free, which was written on the statue of Liberty. But isn't it interesting that the statue of Liberty is a white woman built when slavery ended. They wanted to put broken shackles and have a French revolutionary woman with a fire torch in her arms mm. representing freedom and Liberty but they um, enclosed the flame into like a, a lantern mm-hmm. and they, they made this, um, it was going to be a black woman, but um, so if, what are you saying? What do we need to do first? Or let's start, let's start with the first step. I, I, I just can't comprehend that yeah. call coming. Right. I would say, um, well, for one thing, take all the nuclear weapons off of hair trigger alert. Um, nuclear submarines you know the sad thing is the united states has pulled out of these nuclear weapons treaties the abm treaty the inf treaty um it's time that the the the, we're gonna have to rally people hobie like let's organize a protest because um it's always the masses interjecting themselves that change the dynamics and that move and force the rulers to make decisions that are good for everyone because they represent their personal interests, right? Mm. People are gaining from what the, from what Washington is doing right now, right? The oil companies, the mining companies, um, the weapons manufacturers, um, they're so powerful, right? They're controlling the politicians um, but we have 330 million people, right? And if we can find ways, like you're saying, to communicate and um, we're going to need our Tahrir Square, um, we're going to need our, our moment when the people um, speak, when the people com- complete. And I, I don't think there's another way. I think it, it has to come from the grassroots. It has to... Um, there's a story that Chris Hedges always tells. He's the most amazing journalist of the last 20 years, in my opinion, war correspondent, um, was fired from the New York Times for speaking out against the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And he says that in, in when Nixon was president, the protesters surrounded the White House and Nixon put buses, blockades, you know, and um, he said, Henry, Henry Kissinger, they're going to come in here. They're going to they're going to hang me, you know, and he's caught on tape being so afraid mm-hmm. of us as and, any good politician should be. <laughs> and that's that's where we need to put them. Right? right. So all the cheerleading that you see right now, liberals, you know, they really want to believe in America. But no, we need to, to, to support the radical traditions that we have and um, show up. It's time to show up, people. Don't be cowed into silence. Uh, make your voice heard however you can. Yeah, I mean, 
not the answer you were looking for. Well, I just, I'm skeptical about the power of protest, Mm. you know, uh, just from what I've seen in my lifetime, you know, I watched, I marched with 300,000 people in San Francisco. It's the biggest protest I've ever heard of. I was there. You were there probably right next to me. And yet we still went into Iraq and we still went into Afghanistan. We still had this, you know, this 20 year war that we're still in seven countries. And there's a, you know, I, and I'm not saying this, I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate the work of protest movements around the world. I think it's incredibly laudable, but I'm trying to look at it from like a cold kind of objective view of like how effective can protests be in the modern era of free speech zones and militarized police forces. And, uh, you know, this government that's now turning the, you know, the Patriot act on its own citizens and using terms like domestic terrorism to, 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 uh, label, you know, people who are voicing dissent as, you know, as enemies of the state, taking away their rights, throwing them in prison. Um, what, what, you know, how do we actually like, do we do, do these protests? Like, you know, one of my critiques of the black lives matter pro- protests, you know, maybe this will get me into trouble for saying, but I, I feel like there was an opportunity to really clearly define the objective, you know, like end police violence or hold police accountable or, and these practices, these specific practices, you know, and let's hold form on that. We're not going to stop until we get these clear, concrete things overturned. Mm-hmm. But I saw what, what took place was this kind of almost, uh, fragmentation of what the concrete goals were into larger philosophical things, which although valid, although truthful, were not really action items. And I saw a lot of that protest capital spent on expression of the outrage, expression of the the feelings, but without the concrete action items to actually get the meaningful change done. So to me, like, you know, I guess my question is like, what is that, you know, what is one or three like action items that, if you were to build a meaningful large scale protest around Mm -hmm. like, what are those things that you can go and say, Hey, this is specifically the thing that needs to happen right now. Mm. Because one thing we know about politicians, you can spend 20 years arguing about the definition of is, you know what I mean? Like it's unless you have a very clear thing that needs to, I think, you know, being clear about what is actually possible for us right now mm-hmm. and that we are a weak a weak peace movement yeah and that i do want to respond to the protest comment yeah because protests are are one of the only things we have right and protests make people think and when you see george floyd millions of people for months i was amazed by the sustained mm-hmm. protests people not giving up month after month after month after month, changing the history, changing the understanding, changing the politics. Um, And that only happened 
because of all the work that activists and organizations had done to educate people about the horrific history of racism in this country. That that was a successful um, moment, right? And the next moment has to be bigger and better, more informed, and like you're saying, more detailed in its uh, demands, right? Frederick du mm -hmm. Douglass, power concedes nothing without a demand. Mm -hmm. And demanding for police accountability is not the right demand, right? Police are pawns. Mm -hmm. How do we put them in checkmate, right? We have to go for abolition, right? Abolition democracy. We need prisoners to get their voting rights back. Mm -hmm. We need to end punishment, right? period. Mm -hmm. The era of punishment is over. Punishment makes things worse, just like vengeance makes totally. things war. Just like wars escalate because people buy in to the false, um, low-minded, amygdala idea of punishment right. right so it seems like a last vestige of an like a of an earlier world that we no longer need you know it the is eye for the eye vengeance policy built on vengeance is primitive restorative justice right and when you realize that um so many of these prisoners are just victims of circumstance in mm -hmm. their lives and conservatives and liberals will never want to hear this but um the lack of opportunities with deindustrialization, how black and brown communities were targeted. Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, everybody's got to read it. Um, the injustice in America. If you want to judge the morality of any country in the world, go look at their prisons. Our prisoners are being tortured. Right. Our prisoners are being punished. Our prisoners are being, if you have a felony, you get out of jail, you have a felony conviction, you're treated just like black people are treated dur during apartheid America. That's about the same amount of rights you have as a black man, black person, a brown person uh, with a felony conviction. You can't get housing. You can't get any kind of education, lands, loans. You're um, tagged. Mm -hmm. You're a Dalit. You're an untouchable. Right. You have to sign felon on any job application. Right. Um, it's a caste system. Racism mm -hmm. is far, far, far more ingrained, not just in the American institutions, but in the white psyche of Americans. That racism is a reality that everyone lives in. The small r racism of um, individual racist acts is not, is not what we're talking about. When we talk about racism, it's capital R. It's the entire history of the United States. And if you want to go back to the three fifths clause, which <laughs> we left two hours ago, mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to understand the United States as a slaveocracy that that Thomas Jefferson and the, the framers of the Constitution was Confederacy 1.0, that the, the that the black Africans won the Civil War by switching sides and 200,000 Africans armed, fighting for the North, winning the war. They were a, minor, a minority of the army, but they made up a disproportionate amount of the casualties of the Civil War. They win the war. The black governments are overthrown by the KKK, right? The Civil War is happening at a time when the Native Americans are being ethnically, ethnically cleansed off of the land. So this racism against Africans, this racism against indigenous people spills over after the 50 states are created and America goes to war against Spain, seizes Cuba, mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, the Philippines, 
and sets up a global racist empire right as Europe meets in Berlin and divvies up all of Africa to the to the European imperialist powers, right? And so all everything that we drive on, everything that we wear is rooted in a global racist structure. And that right now, Russia allying with a non-white superpower empire, it's the end of global white supremacy and European hegemony on earth. I think it certainly could be, you could see it that way, for sure. It's, I mean, I think that like, It's, you know, it's, it's hard to get past the, like the xenophobia that is being propagated with all this propaganda. Mm. Like I can, what you're saying right there, right, is like a way of looking at this current conflict and try and thinking about it in like a positive revolutionary light, right? Like, you know, here's these countries that are standing up to American imperialism, right? You know, do I think that Russia... All over the world. Yeah. Not not just Russia, China. That's mm-hmm. the only alliance that can actually like right. turn it back. But the whole world has been standing up to it for 400 years. Mm-hmm. You know, Africa how Europe underdeveloped Africa will change any um, European Americans view about racism, right? Because the population of Africa wasn't allowed to grow for 300 years, right? Asia is by far the most populated continent and Europe was able to develop off of African labor and indigenous lands around the world. But where's Africa right now? What's life like for an African, you know? And it's a neo-colonial system mm-hmm. in Africa where you have black people running the governments, but they're running the same imperialist colonial system, right? And so we are going to have to accept um, Europeans and Westerners having a diminishment in their overall consumption, in their... In their uh, it doesn't have to be if, if we create a socialist system, right? Because all the wealth has been hoarded by the mm-hmm. 1%. Mm-hmm. So, but this is, we have to turn the whole system on earth into a more egalitarian system and accept equality, which means lifting up Africa, lifting up the, in the global south, right? The countries that have been taking blow after blow for century after century. Mm-hmm. And that's not an easy thing, I think, for European Americans to think about or Europeans that um, there's a, as Martin Luther King to say, there's a, a blank check that's returned no good. <laughs> what he's saying is, I have a dream speech, mm. um, that, this, that it was a black, the black liberation struggle goes on the, the human struggle for humanity goes on and um, civil rights don't work. It's a, it's a nice step. It's, an, it's a good legal victory, 
but did the economic conditions of black people improve after the civil rights movement or was there just a, a small kind of black upper class that's bourgeois and it's imperialist um, no the black liberation struggle is, is still going on in America and the Native Americans are prisoners of war in America they petitioned the United Nations to be declared as prisoners of war and so there's an awakening that has to occur specifically among the white population because whiteness was created to enslave and to conquer you know and let's talk a minute about what white identity is right it's a, it's a contract it's a cross-class collaboration you asked early on like who were these slave masters you know it was the rich and powerful of europe the landed class the maritime traders the bourgeoisie but it was a it was a, a cross-class coalition right because they were bringing the destitute mm -hmm. of europe most of the people white indentured servants right but this this collaboration was in seizing land and then bringing millions of africans enslaved africans and that's how europe got rich and when when we're still in that Toni Morrison says we're still in the era of slavery. And so it's a, it's a, like a, it's a kind of a shocking moment when European Americans or pink people as I like to call them mm -hmm. um have this historical revelation and it and, and it really dissipates your white identity and and allows you to feel human actually and to remember oh what maybe I had some really good Irish um, heritage or I, maybe I had some good Bulgarian or German mm -hmm. what's rich in those European heritages because there is richness oh yeah in in stories I have I have many wonderful stories that I tell from pre-Christian indigenous Europe right but this identity of whiteness is really being held up right now um, on the world stage like the world the rest of the world can see that oh my god wait would two white countries go to nuclear war against each other black people didn't even think that was possible You're right um but that yeah i guess that begs the question of like how do you advocate for that or how do you have what you just described without demonizing white people that's I, a great question because i don't think yeah. that like i hear the term used like white used is mostly as a derogatory term these days i think it is and I don't think it's a real and, and thing. And I do agree. Like, I don't think it's a real thing either. I think it was like, it's it's, it was a, a, a term that was used structurally in the history. I'm saying that cross-class yeah. collaboration. So right? my question is that people that historically would have been defined as such, how do you come out of, if we're going to use, say like whiteness is this very specific way of thinking about the world that has to do with imperialism, that has to do with, structural racism that has to do with this kind of mythological belief about um like spiritual purity and superiority you know if 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 a well-intentioned white person quote-unquote white person person of pink descent or whatever whatever ter new term you want to use if they're like great i'm on board yeah what is the pathway for that person getting to be included in the larger movement? So that's where the black radical tradition comes in, right? Mm -hmm. If you wanted to march with Martin Luther King, um, you're more than welcome. People can tell, you know, when you're standing up for justice mm -hmm. and we're all humans, you know, white whiteness is a 
political construct and social construct but it's obvious it's been absolutely debunked again and again as any kind of biological construct right mm-hmm. so it's a myth uh, it's as james baldwin calls it it's a um a, a, a metaphor for power right and so as a, as long as we we we're stuck in our whiteness um we're we're still stuck in that slave era epoch um if we can create socialism right everyone is guaranteed the right to live on the earth right everyone has housing we have the best schools and healthcare system in the world right racism dissipates prisons close right basic truths but whiteness is rooted in capitalism whiteness is like you said rooted in imperialism these things have gone hand in hand for so long capitalism was built on the free trade of African bodies. Mm-hmm. And so it's just silly to think we're going to be white in a hundred years. We're not, we're going to be like, Oh, I think my ancestors came from Irish and Scotland. And then there was this manifest destiny thing that was pretty bad. I almost feel like that term though is like self-defeating. What term? Whiteness. We have to wrestle with it because, but it, it's almost like you, you're, advocating for this movement that is getting rid of this hyper focus on racial importance or or superiority but in doing so you're like pointing the finger at people and calling them the thing that you're decrying you see what i'm saying i think i do like you're saying that no longer should we you know it's these classic martin luther king beliefs right that we shouldn't judge people by the color of their no, skin i'm not saying that i'm not saying be colorblind at all I'm saying we have to recognize our history and talk about it mm-hmm. and talk about it more. And again, you know, race, racists who don't know they're racist say we shouldn't talk about race because that makes you racist. Well, it's yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think there's I'm acknowledging there, I think there's the daylight between not talking about race and not like fixating on it. You know what I mean? But we've been in denial of it for so long. Some people have. I mean, the the political block right. of white supremacy is so strong. Totally. But that's what I'm saying is there's a difference. I see in my own life a huge difference between this political block that you just described, this kind of up, upper middle to upper class culture of people that think in a certain way about how society should be structured and where power should be invested and the way that changes can be made. Hmm. Can we take a minute? Yeah, just let me finish this point. I see I see daylight between that and a lot of people that are existing in their socioeconomic class that don't have a lot of power, that aren't you know that maybe there are some there are some benefits that they're being given in the eyes of the upper echelons by using those kind of political definitions of whiteness but if you went and looked at that person's life they're not in a state of power they're not they're not aware of that privilege that you that people want to label them with and thus by pointing the finger at them and telling them that they're the problem 
you're kind of alienating a huge political block that otherwise might be sympathetic to this cause that you're promoting. Yeah. Are we back on? We're back on. So that's such an important point. I think how do we get people to to realize that that racism hurts everyone besides the people that have used it to control everyone. Right? So the reason there is such a division between people of color and kind of the white upper class, right, is um because that's the way the ruling class has designed it, right? When, and maybe this might be a good time to talk about the Constitution, um, because the Constitution codified white supremacy, which it put it into law, right? Because three three fifths of each black person was going to be counted for the representation of the state, right? Can you say that again? So if you have in Virginia was was really the state that had the most enslaved Africans. And so um, let's say they had 500,000 Africans. They're going to count 300,000 of them in the census. Gotcha. So their representation will be disproportionately. It incentivizes slavery. Well, yeah, you're defining a black person as three-fifths of a white person, right? Isn't, is, is, no, is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying only for purposes of representation in the government. Gotcha. So the Constitution, um, how they came up with, with people they considered subhuman to count them for representation in government was because the Constitution was a Virginia coup. It was the Virginians seizing power over the northern states after you know um after the war after the slaveholders revolt and so not only does it reward slavery the constitution but it incentivizes slavery because if you bring more africans into your state you're increasing the political power of your state gotcha you're getting more representatives in the house right okay and so you know the south got to got to um for so listen to this um washington adams jefferson madison monroe um all but adams was a virginia slave plantation master that's 32 out of the first 36 years of the united states right adams was a one-term president the other four planters were two-term presidents by 1820 in james monroe in 1820, the United States issues the Imperialist Proclamation of 1820, commonly called the Monroe Doctrine. I'm sure my listeners, our listeners have heard the Monroe Doctrine, mm-hmm. right? I've heard the term. And that to this day, the United States says no other power in the world can control the Western Hemisphere, that we are the big dog on the Western, in the Western Hemisphere, right? Mm-hmm. Those proclamations are white supremacist proclamations. And going back to the Civil War, which we've touched upon a few times, um, Civil War, the founding fathers, I believe, are the blacks and the founding mothers are the freed, formerly enslaved Africans that made the Civil War a war about freedom. Lincoln was willing to have a war to keep slavery in the Union. And they changed the Civil War into a revolutionary war. 
And then the reason the black governments, remember I mentioned South Carolina, but significant representation in all the former Confederate states, um, the KKK, that's the beginning of the KKK. The KKK didn't exist before the Civil War. It rises up in the redeemers, they, were, they called themselves, overthrew all these abolition democracy governments and reinstituted a form of slavery Mm. In, in every way other than chattel slavery. They're, that's not true. The black people could stay together as a family if they weren't you know, put in prison. And you could be put in prison for vagrancy. Mm-hmm. You could be put in prison for just about anything, for you know, looking at a white woman. Um, and so that was rolled back. The, the, the progressive moment was that black reconstruction. W.E.B. Du Bois' book, Black Reconstruction, he wrote it in the 1930s. Right. During the period of lynchings, um, after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and um, he's trying to correct the history because the white supremacists have rewritten the history of Reconstruction and accused all those black governments of being corrupt and what governments not corrupt, Mm -hmm. of taking vengeance, of not of being incompetent even though they created the first public schools in the South, even though they were building all the stuff and were trying to create a real democracy. That was the opportunity. But instead, by the time Woodrow Wilson's president in World War I, he's showing birth of a nation in the White House, mm. right? Which portrays the, the, all the tropes of um, black men are hypersexualized and they want to rape your wife. Um, and Woodrow Wilson kicks out the black representatives in the Capitol. So the Capitol becomes white supremacist. And then this is the period of lynchings, right? Ida B. Wells is the journalist who's trying to document all these lynchings that are taking over in the South in this new form of um, racial terrorism, right? And so it's not that long ago. Here we come, World War II mm-hmm. and... Um, Jim Crow, right? Jim Crow forms at the end of the 1800s, right as the U.S. is becoming a global imperialist racist power, right? And so, it, and then the Civil Rights Movement only created the the Civil Rights Act of 1964 came 19, 98 years later after the Civil Rights Act of eight of 1866. It's like like Ibram Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning, really is is an amazing work of history. And the premise is that just as we've made racial progress throughout the history of the United States, there's been racist progress. You know, 13th is the great documentary about how the 13th Amendment had a loophole for for, um, you can enslave people Mm -hmm. who are in prison. Um, So that, that... the, the abolition democracy that Du Bois writes about in his wonderful book, Black Reconstruction, he shows how it wasn't just the defeat of um, this, this incredible moment when black people were participating and actually representing the workers and the poor people, the former slaves were, you know, three, I think it was, um, well, three quarters of the 200,000 soldiers were, were former slaves. About 50,000 of them were free blacks. But these governments were actually representing the real opportunity for democracy in America. 
and then you just go through the whole period of lynchings. And then, you know, you see these maps sometimes, the period of slavery, Jim Crow, apartheid. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, they forget to say mass incarceration. Right. Right. So it's just, and now we have, um, we can't forget our precious brothers and sisters being caged because they don't have citizenship. Mm Mm-hmm. And on the borders, in these the vigilantes and the militias, um, this is white supremacy too. Um, it's a it's a profoundly larger, more difficult dragon that we have to wrestle with, and um, how to talk about it, like you're saying, in a way that doesn't to show like Ibram Kendi has some really good points how racism and capitalism are a two headed hydra. Right. Racial capitalism is Cedric Robinson's masterpiece, um, black Marxism, that, you know, you can't talk about capitalism, imperialism, because without talking about racism, because it's the same thing. And it's hard for white people to hear this, right, because they feel guilty or they feel like they're being attacked. But I'm not attacking the person. I'm only attacking their white identity. And those are different things. I want to know who you really are. I want to see, you know, um, the humanity in everyone Mm -hmm. because it's really there. Well, that's really, I don't think you can get to any of these goals or or ideals without that being at its core. You You know know who's the best, I think, is Cornell West. Because he always brings it with love. His mm-hmm. critique is sharp and crushing. Mm-hmm. But somehow, he brings it with love, you know? He mm-hmm. really does. Yeah. And so does the black radical tradition, actually. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Angela Davis, all uh, Toni Morrison. And in the Caribbean is, is, the, is a bastion of um, intellectuals and... Um, visionaries, you know, C.L.R. James, his book, Black Jacobins, and a lot of Pan-Africanism really grew out of the Caribbean resistance to white supremacy and slavery. And that spread to the liberation movements in Africa after World War II. But here's something people don't know, right? After World War II, the United States takes over Africa to this day. The United States, AFRICOM, the United States is all over Africa, mining, putting down people's people's liberation movements. It's a shocking, it's a sh- shocking history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I think that faith is, is the idea that good draws to it the good. And when you're doing that, when you're part of that goodness, you feel it like you're um, you feel liberated when you're doing the work, you know? Um, and you're not worried about white supremacy or I think people are worried about losing some of their power, the wages of whiteness, Hmm. um, because racism is mostly unconscious in people. So of course they're going to get defensive because they're not aware because it's not a, it's not, a personal thing it's the whole system i just i almost feel like that word like i almost feel like the the movement or the the ambitions of 
the movement could be better served. I know it's not going to happen, but but if if you could somehow decouple the word that you're using from from the ethnicity of the people that you're talking, it because you, it you're talking about a system that is kind of it's not really based on any sort of real. It's it's really not about ethnicity. It's about this like org or this this institutional term that came to be synonymized with with an ethnic makeup but it's I actually it replaced, like it replaced an ethnic makeup. right like like whiteness is this kind of placeholder word for this this institutional term that that gets to say who is a first class citizen and who is not and so the problem that i see with so many people that are the would be allies because they would be immediate beneficiaries of this people of European descent as well as people of African descent, as well as people of South American descent. Um, you kind of get lost in the weeds because it's similar with like a term like racism where people have one understanding of what that word means. And not, not that what you're advocating for isn't just, but I see it being almost unnecessarily difficult because this word in itself already is attached in most people's mind to a different definition. So mm -hmm. it's like, if you could just take that term of whiteness and find another word that means the same thing, I think that, that the idea could be communicated easier to people who might not see the distinction to people that consider themselves white, but not white in the, not that whiteness term. That, and and I, I get what you're saying that term has been used for so many years for people as a badge of superiority. And there are definitely people that still have that in their psychology, right? That have that pride in the term as, as a means of political gains or power. Mm -hmm. But for the majority, I think for the majority of, of people, of people of European descent, of Caucasians, of the pink skins, if you will, if you were able to sit down and talk to them for an hour and explain what it was that this thing, this whiteness thing that you just described to me so eloquently, they'd be like, Oh yeah, I'm against that too. Like, that's not how I self identify. I don't identify with this, you know, and you could go to like rural Tennessee and find people that would march alongside in opposition to that. You could go to South central Los Angeles. You could go to, you know, rural Washington and you would find that there's a huge amount of support, you know, to oppose that sort of, you know, colonial energy or, mm. you know, oh, it, yeah. but we get so caught up in the word. We get so caught up in how, in, you right. know, and how it's defined. I um, hear that. I think I, I, that's a, probably a good criticism of, of some of my analysis. I'm not, a, I'm not beyond, um, well, it's not you alone. It's the, the I see the movement at large scoring so many own goals in in using this language almost with a you know justified sense of defiance and self righteousness. But it I see it from an objective standpoint alienating would be allies and and excluding people that otherwise might be open to furthering these goals and objectives. And mm -hmm. there's enough institutional opposition to these ideas to where I kind of feel like you need to court, you need to, to, to court and cultivate those people. They're not your enemies. They're your, your potential brothers. 
you know. I like that. I like that a lot. I think that um, the way I do it usually is by just talking about history. You know? <laughs> um, but therein lies a lot of people's identity. Like what the history I'm laying out in this um, podcast is vastly contrary to what most people think history of this country is, right? And I think people's I- politics, I think, is largely determined by how you view history. I really believe that. Can you that, say that one more time? That pol- your pop up an in individual person's politics is largely determined in how they perceive history. Right. So the people that think Jacksonian democracy was a leap forward for society, you know, have an entirely different politics than than the Indians who Jackson removed in the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Right. right? <laughs> well, history is written by the victors, right? That's kind yeah. of the the story that's mm-hmm. you know these all these these oh. these peoples that you're oh yeah so can i come back to the w.e.b du bois book sure. sure black reconstruction written in the 1930s the same year that clr james wrote black jacobins putting the haitian revolution finally on the map of um academics and scholars and um he's going and cutting against the grain and um he's really lifting up the the black people in their agency and changing the country, giving credit where credit is due. But we're in the middle of um, Jim Crow lynching America. He's trying to stop the lynchings and Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, reach allies. Right. And so he's doing it through telling history in an accurate and beautiful prose and incredible poet. He has poet. He's using all these things. He's the greatest intellectual of U.S. history, in my opinion. Mm. Um, but it doesn't work. Like, it takes 30 more years until the 1960s until there's an academic consensus about what happened in Reconstruction. The KKK version of Reconstruction lasts for 100 years, you know? And so now, if there's a great consensus about how um, what really happened in Reconstruction and... Um, I think what we're doing now is we are trying to find these this language that can reach more and more people. I do think that there is a group that's pretty unreachable. Um, and I think we need to put our energy and time and find a language that can reach, you know, to, uh, we don't need, we, we need a, a active minority to change the world. It doesn't take a majority. Um, it takes a, like a, a really active um, group of people that are fired up and are willing to be in it for the long haul. And, um, I, you know, you have to reach the people that you can reach. I want to, I want to, I think people do really crave the truth deep down in their soul. Um, and when the United States was created, one of the reason that they had freedom of religion is that Spain was a Catholic empire, Right. Um, but when the United States was a more Protestant empire, but they wanted um, Europeans from all over Europe, um, regardless of religion, to flood in. And it was a great deal for white people because there was opportunity in land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Or should we say for Europeans, just to try to keep our terms 
You know what I mean? Like that, I, it's even in this language, it's so easy to, to, like, if you are trying to build this idea in people's minds of excluding the term white from its, from like, if we're using white as a political term to describe the system or to describe the institutionalized labeling versus the people themselves, maybe it would be helpful to use a term like Europeans or, Um, you know, like, I guess I'm hesitant because there's so many white people that are not our allies and that kind of just want to not see color. I think there's a, like you were kind of mentioning that earlier, I think that, that we can't push. I don't think we can push whiteness off, off the front table. I really think we have to address it. I think it's a term that um, we're going to be struggling with the rest of our lives that, but we can see beyond what you're talking about. I think is wanting us to see beyond which is where we're going. We are going to a post-racial society, right? And I think we want to point that direction, mm-hmm. right? I really do. Um, because people um, are going to be happier if they can identify as um, so many things. Like, why do you... Why I, I, I just think that identity is deeply rooted and we're not going to pull it out unless we call it out. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't think, from my own experience, like hyper-focusing on someone's race is a great way to connect with them. And maybe we're doing that now because race, I want to talk about, you know, class, right? That's that's the thing that that people are really united. Well, that's where I see the the real potential for in 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 aligning people. Okay, so let's, if people can realize that you know 90% of us are in the same class and in that the economic agenda we can push for will benefit 90% of the population mm-hmm. right i absolutely agree with that um and it, it, identifying with everyday people you know the people that run everything the ruling class the people could just say bye we're going to remain where gravity holds us thanks you think you think cops are going to show up and evict everyone? No, I mean we really are. There is there is you can never erase the truth that humanity is one, that we are all one. Mm-hmm. That the spiritual basis to reality is a unitive consciousness. And I I don't think any political movement is going to succeed unless it's rooted in a spiritual basis, a spiritual like the Native Americans when Standing Rock was happening. And you would go to a, a march for Standing Rock, radically different than a march um, that's not led by Native Americans. Prayer, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there's a good thought. Let's <laughs> honor the earth and let's direct ourselves towards sacredness before we march. Like that was like, I want to go to the next march. Right. And I think the Native American tradition is our spiritual foundation for the future. And I think that the black, Radical tradition is the the lead the lead faction because they have the longest history of anti-imperialism, and they have 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 a a history of maintaining love and and community and resilience through all the tragedies of history. Yeah, the question you know another question arises too, which is 
you know, how do you navigate the seemingly inevitable corporate capture of these movements, right? Like, look at how the woke movement has been become like the the face of the new corporate aesthetic in this country, right? You look at any one of these megacorps, Chase, Chase Bank, the weapons, uh, what was it, Raytheon, you know, we have a trans worker at Raytheon, person of color can make bombs too, you know. Black Lives Matter flag in the background of the CEO's office. Billboards in Poland saying Raytheon. Right, exactly. So like, and I think that's where a lot of the resistance that has cropped up to, you know, this movement that you've just described, I think for a lot of people, they're, they're getting this, they're getting the, the well-intentioned messages of the true activists or of the people that are acting out of love filtered through this corporate megalith that is trying to take the identitarianism of it and use that to further divide, you know, the working classes in this country, which, which is so counterproductive to the end all, you know, it causes so much confusion because if I'm hearing these prescriptions through the lens of a company like Nestle, like, is that really going to be representative of what, you know, this this movement is actually advocating for? Well, I think like your podcast and you really described well something like there's a whole nother media. Right. There is a you're giving me hope by talking about this kind of grassroots media where people are turning off CNN and Fox, mm-hmm. MSNBC, and that the younger generation is way more open to socialism and is is less um, conditioned by the kind of old American dream hypnosis, you know, and is in an economic situation entirely different from their parents' generation. Yeah. Which all leads and points us towards solidarity. Um, I mean, we're at a breaking point, you know, in this country. Um, The Build Back Better plan (laughs) would have been a nice Band-Aid. Yeah. Right? It would have taken a little pressure a $3,000 child tax credit and all these little band-aids would have taken a little pressure out of the thing. But I think the people are, are, you know, they're, we're in, we're, we're in a shock right now with what's happening. And then I think people are going to get angry because it's going to make everything worse for everybody except the, the profiteers. Mm-hmm. And that is going to lead to opportunities really for the people to speak. Like there's and we've been feeling it coming, you know. Mm-hmm. There's been waves of of different movements happening, um, and the question is, can we can we organize and can we, like you're saying, and I think Toby, this is one of your skills, is your ability to talk to people who are have a vastly different ideology. I think you're better at that than I am. I I want to slam them pretty hard, and I know I turn people. <laughs> I'm sure listeners to this podcast are like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> that's okay with me because that's my, right. I know that's my path. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the, the politician that's trying to win a majority vote. You know, I'm a, I'm a white dude who is carried away by the black radical tradition mm-hmm. and native American resistance. Leonard Peltier. You're a pink dude, right? I'm going to hold you to that pink. term. Well, I'd like to be pink. <laughs> um, 
Because you, do you feel like you still subscribe to the, that so quote-unquote whiteness? That well, subscri- I grew up where like my aunt has done some of the DNA stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I grew up and we were told that somehow we didn't have one story of Europe, zero. But somehow we were German, Welsh, Irish, English, Scotch, and Swede. But not one story mm-hmm. made it to California. So part of whiteness to me is an amnesia of your European heritage. It's a great point. And so that's why it's white fragility, right? Robin D'Angelo, that book is really good too. Mm. Um, pe- white people do have a fragility in their identity because their identity has to do a lot with the racial history of the United States and with the, with the fervent nationalism of the United States, right? You'll see fascism today is wrapped in a, a, a flag and a cross, Right, a Christian cross in a U.S. flag, like because it's it's filling this void of identity, right? Um, because it was a British, there were thirteen British colonies, right? but they weren't all British people, right? Mm-hmm. It was a pan-European project. So how do we get people back in? In you know, how do we build that connection? Because with 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 our roots, right? With those stories, because mm. so often when I hear people attempting to do that, they're then labeled as white supremacists, like white pride. You know, this, the, this is a term that gets no, thrown. No, no, no. If you're yeah. a, if you're a fiddle player from Ireland, yeah. you know, or you're a German dancer, I mean, there's so much, go to Europe if mm-hmm. you want to get back in touch with your ancestral roots or learn the stories that have survived. Like mm-hmm. I have several stories from pre-Christian Europe. And they're one of the richest traditions of European Americans in on Turtle Island as a tradition of storytelling, you know. And let me just name a few. Martine Prechtel, uh, who became married into a Mayan family by Lake Atitlan, who's written some of the most incredible spiritual works of art um, of anyone in this century. Uh, Martin, Martin Shaw is a, um, Irish. I think he's Irish or Welsh, I'm not sure, but he's this incredible storyteller. Michael Mead, uh, James Hillman, Robert Bly. These guys are telling the stories that go back to our heritage and teach us how to live, right? But because so few people are really rooted in those brilliant stories that teach us how to live, mm-hmm. the, the consumerism and materialism fill the void. And so culture... You know, in, in um, the black radical t- tradition, people are always talking about Marxism, Leninism, right? I mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. But is where's the spiritual basis? Well, that becomes, I think, with the void, you know, it, ideologies become the spiritualism if you don't have a spiritual and practice. And it's not present. there. There's no, an emptiness not. in it. It's cold. It's cold. It's a, it's a rhetoric that um, doesn't resonate with enough people because it doesn't have that spiritual profundity, right? Um, and it's a Eurocentric philosophy when the, the world is going to change the world, right? Mm-hmm. The whole world, seven point something billion people are all engaged in this story we're living right now. Mm-hmm. And um, we've reached a point the pandemic, you know, the upside is that it really made us think of that 
the health of the world is completely integrated that everyone's health affects everyone else's health wendell berry i want to throw his name into the cauldron and stir, <laughs> stir a little bit a lot of names in that cauldron <laughs> because w- wendell berry you know is one of our greatest writers and um ecology ecological wind wisdom always reminding us that everybody's health is integrated Mm -hmm. and that the grace that is the health of all creatures um, can only be held in common so everyone's health affects everyone else the butterfly that flaps its wings changes the political dynamic in berkeley well that's i mean this that's kind of where i feel like you know if we're talking about action items or how someone can meet these forces that seem insurmountable, that seem bigger than them. Um, I do feel like, and especially if we're talking about ideal political systems as well, you know, and, and this is, this is going to be my small town roots showing. Uh, I really do think, and it's it's almost a trope at this point, but like it needs to happen on the local level. Mm-hmm. I do think that yeah. like one of the side effects of globalization and of the information age is that we're all we all spend so much of our mental bandwidth worrying about problems that are so far away, mm-hmm. and it's good to be aware. But I think it's also really important that you know to have a local focus on your efforts or, you know, elsewise you get overwhelmed. You can't take the place of your You've, local activity. Yeah. And, and that doesn't need to be again. Like I see, I, I, when I hear even the word activism, there's like this negative connotation to it. Cause it's like, ah, this isn't fun. This isn't mm. pleasurable. This isn't positive. And to me, it's like the only way I see, that those sort of efforts actually becoming sustainable mm-hmm. at the end of the day you got to accept that humans are humans and we want to have fun and we want to do things that we that feel good to us mm-hmm. so to me any sort of meaningful sustainable political mm-hmm. mo- movement mm-hmm. at its root mm-hmm. has to be fun mm-hmm. has to be positive mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. to have at its roots mm-hmm. a system that's going to improve the health of of its members and is doing it is in all, by the gathering itself, right? If you're improving the, health. it's it's a it's almost like a holographic structure, right? Where the act of moving towards joy, love, connectedness, togetherness, mm. is in mm. itself defiance of the tyranny of these liar systems. Right? Beautifully said. How do we create a feeling that everyone wants to be a part of? Exactly, because then you're, you know, rather than having to badger and bludgeon your political rivals with by, by pointing the finger and by telling them that they're doing it wrong, you're getting to take advantage of that human, that most human of psychologies, which is that like, I don't want to be left out. Those guys are having a blast over there. How do I enter the tent and become part of what it is, you know? So at a time right now when things seem super dark and there's, you know, uh, we're looming on the brink of thermonuclear oblivion I think it's more important than ever that we remain playful, that we remain uh, mischievous, that we remain, you know, again, I I keep coming back to this idea of the merry pranksters. I think Mm. it was such a radical idea 
and so needed at this time. Everybody's so serious these days that it's hard not to be serious, right? Ooh. So we almost need like a cultural, you know, you're talking about ideal, you know, these new political blocks. We need like a merry prankster party whose sole job is to get everybody to like, to take everybody out of that serious mind for a second so that you can reawaken yourself to the joy that is inherent in being a human and being alive so that you can then be open to making changes so that you can then be open to moving with love in your actions. And and that that actually is a fundamental part of the designs that you're working towards because I hear so much rhetoric that is infected by the very same hatred and anger and negativity that it's seeking to overthrow, you know, and it's, if there's one thing I've learned about this dominant system, it's very adept at fighting on its own terms. And if you're trying to resist this hegemony that we're purporting to, to resist, they're very good at fighting in the way that they fight. So fighting in the way that they fight, they're going to beat you nine out of 10 times. So, you know, they know violence. Yeah. They know violence. They know, you know, how to move people and how to incarcerate people and how to take away people's voice by emotion. Right. So to me, it's less of a physical teardown of these structures Mm -hmm. and more of a joyous abandonment of them. Mm. Because one thing they can't do is take away your decision to, to abandon the structure. Right. And I think that needs to happen at the local level by us working in our communities to build these positive structures of connection it can be something as simple like is going and playing in your neighborhood basketball game or it's making a big pot of stew and feeding tons of people. You know, like you were saying earlier, the Black Panther movement, just having those free medical centers or, or free feeding or, you know, like the, I think we do have an opportunity to get incredibly creative and and think outside of these traditional boundaries of what is activism and what is a political movement um, to to infuse our own creative talents uh, and 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 to you know to to be thinking inclusive not just in this like kind of corporate seized language inclusivity context but like truly how do we include everybody how do we show everybody that there's a seat at the table if that when they're ready to sit down. Beautiful, Hobie. Really, really beautiful. The art, right? You're really making me think of art and how art has always been front and center with social change. Right? All the all the great movements have had profound artwork and music. Right? I feel like music is one of the things that is missing from the movement right now, right? It's out there and it's in local, you know, every town has music, but um, how do we amplify the profound beauty of the human experience, right? And how do we put beauty central, right? In Mm -hmm. in this um, metamorphosis, transformational cusp of, ages that we're living in right now you know and the imagination that um is really at the center of all power is like the imaginative ability to um 
to create anything. Like if you can imagine it, mm-hmm. um, imagination is omnipotent. Like everything was created by imagination. Including ourselves. It, and, I, and how do we decouple like one of the things I've noticed about my generation in particular uh the old protest music of the past of the hippie of the sixties of the thirties like that music's corny now like not I'm not saying those songs are, but when I see someone write like a protest song now, there's almost this like it's not like the right on cutting edge cool vibe. That there, there, there's like a level of almost pretentiousness to it that I think is inherent in this like late stage capitalist society that we live in. So my question is like, my my intuition about that isn't that uh, there's you know that we don't have talented artists that are making great music. It's more that how do we change the messaging to fit the new times? Because I think that old you know, that older style from a generation ago of what they were writing, what Bob Dylan was writing in his songs. When you look at it through the modern lens where we've made music such a, like music's become part of this like late stage capitalist corporate structure to the nth degree, we've mined so much feeling out of music. Uh, I feel like my intuition is that you almost have to take the specifics out of the songs if you're going to be writing a song that's going to have meaning for like, people needs to build their own meaning out of the structure mm-hmm. and giving people like literal prescriptions in the words i feel like kind of can kind of be limiting to the emotional potential of the song or what how it can affect your intended audience i just i think at this moment at this juncture in time we need to bring joy back into people's lives because happy people are open people and we're living through like this kind of mass mental health crisis after these last couple of years where everyone's in a state of like barely contained hysteria. People are like, you know, white knuckling their way through an existence that continues to fragment and, and fall apart. And, but we do all have this fundamental desire to dance around the Maypole Ooh. to rip our clothes off and jump in the river to, you know, like there's some things that I think are just part of being human. And I've, I've witnessed this last night. I walked down the street to catch the end of my friends playing music at this, you know, fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras party thing. And I was looking around and the, the there was a light in everybody's eyes just standing on the sidewalk, like this hunger for, getting to be a human again Mm, i think let's imagine ourselves coming out of this you know last two years and it having be this like metamorphosis of coming turning into a butterfly you know um i can i can definitely imagine that because i feel that that i know that hunger is there where this is nobody saw this two-year period predictable you know it's Mm -hmm. like it hit people. It was like the last thing we needed it was to be more alienated from each other. But the pendulum swings, and we need to swing back with this hunger and this thirst for life 
and to let that spill in and just flood our whole society. Mm-hmm. And um, history always shows us that eras end and new eras begin. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll we'll, we'll end it with, I, w- I wanted to say one last thing here at the end, which is that, you know, I know we've, over the course of these last, what is it, three and a half, four hours that we've been talking, uh, it's easy to go to that spa- st- state of doom and gloom. You know, we're seeing some crises emerge, but I do feel like, you know, one way to look at it is that, you know, our country, we really can't afford another war. We're really not in a place where, like, our system can really handle going in and, and doing this again. And you can look at that with fear, you know, but you can also look at it. Here's an opportunity where this broken system that's come off the rails is attempting to do what it does again, but it's already shaking. And this could be the event that, like, finally shakes the bolts loose and allows us to peacefully, with joy, move out of this era of, like, imperialism and uh, and war and into a new era of love and connection and creativity and peace, you know. Ahoma takriyasa boom shanka balinat. There you go, dude. Wow, we just, we went through.